You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Thank you, David. Thank you, worship team, everyone who is participating and the conducting of this service. Thank you for being here on a dreary Sunday morning. It's always wonderful in our hearts, though, when we think about the gospel, which is going to be the focus of our uh, service today. If you were here for the first time, we extend to you a very special welcome, and I hope you get to know some of the fine folks who are here, even if some second service folks slipped in during the first service. That'll be okay, right? Well, Rotten Tomatoes gives it 54%, although the audience score is 99%. Gospel Coalition, plugged in from Focus on the Family, give it much more favorable reviews. I'm talking about the movie Jesus Revolution, uh, which follows the beginnings of the Jesus movement. Historians say it was the last great revival in our land from 1970, somewhere around 1970, until 1972, the year that I trusted Christ. I'm glad I wasn't any younger. I would have missed the Jesus movement. So the Lord got me in just in time. You can understand why Allison and I enjoyed this movie so much on Thursday night, and I truly hope that you will be able to see it sometime this week. It's in multiple theaters, lots of times you can see it this week. One of the key figures in the film is Lonnie Frisbee, who was a converted hippie and he, who kept the persona and brought a lot of friends to this little country church in Costa Mesa, California, pastored by Chuck Smith. Uh, as Smith was trying to process, process what was going on, because Lonnie Frisbee kept bringing his friends, they were coming into the church barefooted, you know, and dressed in their hippie attire. As he was trying to process what, was, what the Lord was doing, Lonnie said something like, I just came from Haight-Ashbury up in San Francisco, where many people are realizing that the promises of drugs and free love are empty and false promises, and their souls are in worse shape now than they were before. It was all a lie, and people are looking for what is real, and Jesus is changing lives. Sounds like a lot of the lies that people are believing today. And if you've believed a lie, which we all have at some point or another, it seems so plausible. It seems so real. But everything fades except for Jesus. Well, it wasn't exactly like that. Maybe that Lonnie Frisbee said those words, but it was, it's close enough. What had such an impact on all of those lives in the early 70s. They heard and believed the gospel. And in believing, their lives were changed as were their eternal destinies. As Colin Hansen has said, when you pluck the string of the gospel, it never stops reverberating in your heart. It is no wonder in 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul identified the gospel as of first importance. 
1 Corinthians 15 is about the resurrection. Some in Corinth question whether or not human bodies, after they had been long dead and buried, would live again. It's not that the Greeks were questioning, the Corinthians were questioning the resurrection of Jesus. They believed that. But they said, but I'm going to live again after, I mean, I can already tell how my body is decaying. Don't tell me I'm going to live again. And Paul said, "Uh uh-uh, you can't believe one without the other. Much more about that in the next two weeks. But in today's text, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 11, we're going to find the Apostle Paul laying the foundation for what he will soon teach concerning the resurrection of all believers. And that foundation is the truth of the gospel, which includes, of course, the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to read the text, then seek to understand it before bringing application at the end. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 11. It's our custom to stand as the word is being read. If you would please stand for the reading of God's word. The Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians. Now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you. Which you received and in which you stand. And by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep or have died. Then he appeared to James... Then to all the apostles, last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you and be seated. There is a lot of truth in these first two verses of 1 Corinthians 15. We need to be oft reminded of the basics of the gospel, which must be received and believed if we are to stand in the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is the power through which we are being saved. Okay, but what about Ephesians 2, 8, 9? That says that we have been saved. For by grace you have been saved Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. Have we been saved or are we being saved? Yes. (laughs) Same thing. Do we receive the truth of the gospel or does it come 
by faith. It is undoubtedly a gift that must be received. We cannot attain it through our best efforts. And when Paul wrote to the Corinthians that they were being saved as long as they hold on to the word that was preached to them, was he putting a condition on them remaining saved? Was he saying, you have been saved, but if you want to hang on to it, you better be careful? No, we can no more keep ourselves saved than we can save ourselves in the first place. He does, however, question the core of their beliefs. Perhaps, Paul warned, you have believed in vain. This would be akin to you asking someone, do you know Jesus? Have you been saved? Have you trusted Christ? And they say, oh, yes. And then you ask, well, tell me about what that salvation means to you and them saying something like, well, you know, I was baptized and I'm just doing the best I can to be a Christian. Would you say that such a person is in danger of losing what he has or that perhaps he, he never trusted Jesus instead of his own ability to do good works? It's likely the latter, but even so, we must continually warm our hands by the fires of the gospel and not forget that we, what we believe today is just as important on the day that we first believed it. One of the ways we do so is to recite creeds. We sang a creed this morning, and I know that for some of you, creeds feel ritualistic. It's like you're just going through the motions. This is what's held us together all these years. This that Paul is about to give is the earliest, one of the earliest creeds. And so Paul does in verses 3 to 5. In verse 3, he reminds the Corinthians of the core message of the gospel. Why? Because it is of first importance. He might have said, if you miss the full truth of the gospel, you've missed everything. What are the primary tenets of the gospel? Verses 3 through 5. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I, what I also received, <clears throat> that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and he goes on to give the other appearances. So let's break that down for a little bit. First, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. The first century church considered the Old Testament to be their Bible. That's when, what Paul was pointing to when he says Christ died according to the scriptures. He's saying it's all in there. <laughs> it's been there all along. Even so, as we saw last week in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul, as an apostle, issued commands with the full authority of the Old Testament writers. He understood that what he was saying was part of the new covenant and that they needed to listen to him as they would listen to Moses and Isaiah and the Old Testament writers. So, Although the understanding of Jesus' sacrificial death was not fully understood until after his resurrection, the teaching was there, particularly in the servant songs of Isaiah's prophecy. 
You'll recall from earlier in 1 Corinthians that the word of the cross is foolish, foolishness or folly to those who are perishing. <coughs> but to those of us who have been, no wait, who are being saved, it is the power of God. There's that phrase again. We are being saved. It's in the present tense in the Greek. So it's a continual action. How refreshing to think, not that we were saved years ago and life is just, well, it is what it is, but rather to know that we are being saved out of the pain and confusion and hopelessness of this life that is passing away. The implication of verse 3 is that if Jesus had not died in our place, we would have no hope of eternal life. But if Jesus is the Son of God and thus God, how can he die? It's the mystery of the Trinity. Not only did Jesus die, but he was buried. He didn't faint on the cross. He died and his lifeless body was taken up, placed in the tomb, wrapped for burial. We know the story though. He didn't remain in the tomb. After three days in the way that days were counted in the Jewish reckoning, Jesus was raised from the dead just like the scriptures had said he would be raised. So where in the Old Testament was Jesus' resurrection prophesied? (laughs) There are a lot of allusions to the resurrection, including Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Psalm 16, the story of Jonah, which was affirmed by Jesus, and Hosea 6, 1 and 2. But the promise of the resurrection was as much about an understanding of God's faithfulness to his servant son, who humbled himself to die for our sins, as it was about a specific verse. Not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but he made appearances in his resurrection body. First to Cephas. Now just think about that. Cephas is the Aramaic name for Peter. Just think about the fact that Jesus went first to Peter. Mary Magdalene before Peter, but Peter's the first one named here. Imagine that. The one who had denied him three times. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, tell my disciples and Peter that I have risen. Not, you tell Peter I want to see him, but tell Peter I love him. I'll see him very soon. But he told Mary. After Peter, Jesus appeared to the 12 or to the disciples. Then to 500 at one time. Then to James Not James the apostle, but James the half-brother of Jesus, who would become the leader of the Jerusalem church. Remember, his brothers mocked him back in John 7, and now the resurrected Jesus appears to James and says, It's okay, James. God has a big plan for you. It's all right what you thought in the past. You belong to me now. And then he appeared to all the apostles, likely Barnabas, Others who had seen the resurrected Jesus and served the Lord faithfully in the early church. 
The point of Paul's list of eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection was that the resurrection was historically verifiable, or if you choose to think in these terms, disprovable. The Corinthians wanted to say, resurrection just doesn't happen. Paul said, you, really? Um, you want to check it out? Help yourself. <clears throat> Ask any of these other witnesses about what and whom they saw. The essentials in the list that Paul gives here connects Jesus' resurrection with his death. You remember from 1 Corinthians 2, 2, that Paul said, when I came to Corinth, I had determined to not preach anything to you, not know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So, The cross is heavily emphasized in the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians. And now here in chapter 15, Paul emphasizes the complete story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, which he proved by many appearances in his resurrected body. The death of Christ doesn't mean a thing if he wasn't resurrected. And the resurrection doesn't mean a thing unless it's connected to the sacrificial atoning death of Jesus Christ. Their one event, often treated as one event appropriately in Scripture because everything happened according to design, according to Scripture, according to the way it was written. In verse 8, Paul gives a glimpse of the personal nature of the gospel when he calls himself one who was untimely born. And he's saying, I was born again, but it was untimely. (coughs) The Greek word for untimely is rather graphic. It means prematurely born or even miscarriage. There's a possibility that some of the Corinthians who did not like Paul called him that. They said, you were born out of sequence. You weren't supposed to be born. Just didn't work out for you. Whether that was so or not, Paul's point was that God's grace was amazing in serving one who should have been put to death because he had put believers to death. Paul never forgot how merciful the Lord had been To one who should have been condemned. He understood that everything is of grace. Not because of any goodness of his own. His motivation to serve the Lord with all that was within him. Came from grace. Not from the fear that he had to atone for the sins that he had committed earlier in his life. Paul was serving because of what God had done, not so that God would accept him. Paul also understood that one day he would be resurrected and stand before God in his flesh. All this was true and had been believed by the Corinthians, whether it was Paul or another who had preached it. But now they were wavering and so Paul 
we'll next week we'll get into his teaching on <clears throat> the resurrection of the saints. Amen. Three points of application, beginning with either we will stand in the truth of the gospel or we will not stand at all. We need to hear gospel truth every Sunday, every week in home group or youth group, every day in the, in the word. The message that we are not good enough to earn our salvation is not a popular message in our day. Think of the message that we hear constantly. You are good enough. Don't you let anyone tell you that you're not good enough. Deep down, we all know, though, that we're not good enough. <clears throat> well, most of us know that. Even if we know it, we don't want someone else telling us that we're not good enough, right? The problem, here's the real problem with insisting that I don't need that. <clears throat> you keep your religion to yourself until you recognize how hopeless you are apart from Christ, you will never understand the depths of his love for you in Christ. You can never know how loved you are until you say, I can't do this. I'm not good enough. When we walk in light, it's easy to forget that we once walked in darkness and we can't we, we can find it difficult to understand why others just don't see I hear it all the time how do people get through this life how can they not see well here's a hint they are spiritually blind they can't see the truth of the gospel unless the Lord opens their eyes so as you encounter those who don't know Jesus, pray that God will do just that and proclaim the truth to them in faith. Do not be surprised, Peter warned us, though, if your gospel message is rejected. Don't be surprised when fiery trials come upon us, often at the hands of unbelievers. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 to 13. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This was Peter's letter was later uh, in the canon of Scripture. It was not far from persecution, and I think everybody sensed that it was coming. Peter didn't say, so hide or don't quit talking about the Lord. He said in verse 3, 13, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Talk a lot about how the gospel is so much bigger than the plan of salvation. The gospel encompasses everything in life. And this is just one of the ways that we see it. When we suffer, whether it's from witnessing, whether it's from... Um, an illness, whether it's from a relational breakup, whether it's going to Suriname when you're an old man, I don't, whatever it is, when you're suffering at that level, I'm just kidding, Ted. 
When you're suffering at that level, you're communing with Christ at next level. I, I thought about this. Man, I prayed for Ted. I thought about Ted. I was in communication with him and with Gail uh, during this trip. He had a hard time in Suriname. And you know what? It just struck me this morning, even as I was sitting here and I was thinking about the message, is how when Paul says in Colossians 1, I am filling up the sufferings on your behalf in the body of Christ. I don't know. There's a sense maybe. I don't know how it all works, but maybe, Ted, you were suffering on our behalf. And we were suffering with you in our calling out to the Lord, please take care of our brother. The gospel is so much bigger than just the initial moment when we believe Jesus. When we commune with Jesus and when we suffer well, which doesn't happen very often now. And since I have not suffered a lot physically, I've lost my first wife who is now with the Lord. But I don't know how I'm going to do when my body starts to fail. Like some of your bodies are failing. I do know what it's like to lose someone you love very dearly who's part of you. Who knows how we're going to suffer the world tells us to find a way to get through it, get by. But the Lord wants us to suffer as those who believe not only in Jesus, but those who believe in the resurrection. And when we suffer well, Jesus shines through. The gospel brings much of life into focus. The world tells us how to make much of ourselves, but the gospel reminds us to make much of Jesus. Either we will stand in the gospel or we will not stand at all. Second, we have the privilege of handing down the same gospel that has been handed down to us. Be faithful, therefore, and diligent to treat the gospel, just like Paul did, as of first importance. Paul did not pretend to be the inventor of the gospel. God gave him special understanding, and he talks about it in Galatians 1 and 2. But the story of the gospel Jesus died, was buried, rose again, according to the scriptures, all according, had been passed to him. As you know, you hear it a lot, we are one generation away from losing the gospel. Now, we know that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The church is going to keep going. But the gospel moves around. If you look at history, it moves around. And in our land, <clears throat> I haven't really thought about it too much until recently that we really are one generation away from losing the gospel. Go see the movie. You have to see the movie, Jesus Revolution. The fact that we're so close... To die and out is motivation enough to share the gospel, but it's far 
from the best motive. We please God when we share the good news of what he has done for us through Jesus, assuring others that he will do the same for them. If they will but receive the good news that Jesus died for their sins and was resurrected for the justification of those who believe. And you're like, huh, wait a minute, don't worry. That's just the truth. It comes to you over time. The people that we seem to be so willing to criticize for their political views and their personal choices are hurting. Even if they're unable to identify the source of their pain and emptiness. They need the gospel. It's not that we were so good that God said, okay, gosh, I really want Scooter in there. I'm just going to make a way for somebody to witness to him because he really, none of us deserve it. We're no better than the people. We watch on television and say, I can't believe those people, what, regardless of what side you're on. We believe the good news, and now we're privileged to share it with all who will hear. We're even privileged to share it with those who don't want to hear and refuse to listen. It's all part of God's design. And anything we do that's part of his design, it's a good thing. We were reminded early in 1 Corinthians that when it comes to sharing the gospel, one sows, another waters. God is the one who produces the fruit. We receive the gospel in bits and pieces, a little here and a little there. So it's not necessary to share the whole gospel story in one go. But sooner or later, when you're telling someone about Christ, you're going to have to encourage them to make a decision. For Christ. And if they refuse to make a decision for Christ, they are making a decision about Christ. The gospel was handed down to us, and we are blessed to be the ones to hand it down to others. The last point of application God's grace is amazing. And so live as though you intend for glory to go to God. All of these points of application about the gospel blend together, don't they? The truth of today's text is as basic as it gets. But everything depends on whether we are willing to remain committed to these basics or not. Paul never forgot from whence he came. We say that we remember, but do we really? Do we say with our lips, I am what I am by the grace of God, but in our hearts, it's more like, you know, I've really worked hard to get where I am. And truth be told, God and those around are kind of lucky to have me. It's not that hard work is to be disparaged. Paul said, I worked harder than any of them. But he added, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. By the grace of God, I am what I am. 
When we fail to remember the need for a savior who died for us and the blessing fail to remember the blessing of the resurrection of the saints that will occur when Jesus returns. And when we fail to embrace all that the resurrection implies about the way we live our lives right now, it's natural for us to think about ourselves and our place in the world. The gospel reminds us always of our need of grace. And as Chuck Swindoll says, never expect or receive glory that is intended for God. That's a good word. Never expect or receive glory that is intended for God. Now, that doesn't mean anytime someone compliments you, you have to say, oh, no, it's not me. I'm a dish rag for Jesus. It's all glory goes to him. Just say thank you when somebody compliments you. Just say thank you. But run, recognize. And it, any chance you get to praise the Lord, praise him. And just think because of the resurrection. The story of your life when told through the lens of the gospel gives praise to the creator and redeemer of your soul. <laughs> it's enough thinking about the joy that awaits us to produce joy in our hearts at present as well. The elders and staff are reading through Christopher Watkins' book, Biblical Critical Theory. We are reading it very slowly. Maybe I should say deliberately. I might uh, add that it is a remarkable, exhilarating, philosophical, challenging, and dense book of doctrine. In the chapter on creation, Watkins says... From the very first verse in the Bible, we sense that reality is shaping up remarkably like a story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He says so much more about it, but that's enough for this point. But when you think about it, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's the beginning of the story. It's one of the reasons that stories such as Lord of the Rings and Chronicles of Narnia can be so effective in stirring the imagination to consider the truth of the gospel. I know that many of you are Lord of the Rings fans. I know that many of you are most decidedly not Lord of the Rings fans, and you don't want to hear it. I'm truly sorry, but I must. Who would you say is the real hero in the epic tale of Middle-earth, Lord of the Rings, the plain and simple hobbit, Sam Gamgee. You probably came to this conclusion before you heard that Tolkien identified Samwise Gamgee as the chief hero of the story. Near the end of the story, after Frodo was Sam's significant help, had destroyed the ring of power, Frodo and Sam were taken to Minas Tirith to heal. When Sam awoke, Gandalf, whom Sam had thought to be dead, was standing over him. And here is what comes next, and I 
So far, I haven't gotten through it without crying. I hope I can. Quote. Full memory flooded back. And Sam cried aloud. It wasn't a dream. Then where are we? And a voice spoke softly behind him. In the land of Athelion. And in the keeping of the king. And he awaits you. With that, Gandalf stood before him, robed in white, his beard now gleaming like pure snow in the twinkling of the leafy sunlight. Well, Master Samwise, how do you feel? He said. But Sam lay back and stared with open mouth and for a moment between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last, he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? David used that line a few weeks ago. A great, what's, what's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all joys he had ever known. But he himself burst into tears. Then, as a sweet rain will pass down a wind of spring, and the sun will shine out the clearer, his tears ceased, and his laughter welled up, And laughing, he sprang from his bed. How do I feel? How do I feel? He waved his arms in the air. I feel like spring after winter and sun on the leaves and like trumpets and harps and all the songs I have ever heard. That's the hope of the resurrection. That's the hope of the resurrection, both in this life and the next. It's no small thing. It's the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Father. Inexpressible joy is a term we understand to think that those of us who, all of us who know you, were destined. For an eternity apart from you in hell. Until you rescued us. Until you brought us into your family. And you claimed us as your own. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus. Who died for us. Was raised on the third day. Showed himself to many. Ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of God. Pouring out his heart on our behalf. 
Thank you for the promise that one day we will live with you for eternity. And the marks that Jesus still bears will be the fee for our entrance. He died for us. Burn this gospel truth deep into our hearts. May we live for you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.